Let us pray. Holy God, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, our rock and our redeemer. Alleluia. Amen. So Adam and Eve. I think we know this story, right? Like, you know, I don't think you need to have read the Bible to know this story. God said, don't. But the snake asked, well, why? Any of you who have ever had children know that. Why? Right? We've all heard it. The snake asked, well, did God really say that? And, well, you don't think it would really happen like that, do you? God wouldn't really do that, right? Right? Now, to this point in the story, Adam and Eve came and functioned as a unit. They were one original creature, dirt and spirit, who had been split into two. Because despite our translations and our traditions, God took Eve from Adam's side, not Adam's rib, for what it's worth. God took the original creature... You know, that whole, like, God took dirt and, you know, formed dirt and then breathed into it and then, boom, human, right? God took that original creature, which was whole and unique in the world, and split it into two equal beings with no hierarchy between them. And so we have Adam, which means soil, you know, that stuff that God used to make humanity. And we have Eve, which means life, you know, that stuff that God breathed into the soil to actually make it human. And together, we have one creature who demonstrates the fullness of all that God has made. And in splitting the two apart, in making two creatures where there had been one, God forms them into creatures in relationship with each other. God formed them to help one another. The word for help there being not the sort of help meet that implies a hierarchy in our lovely understanding of the world, but is in fact the word that is used in all other instances in the Bible to describe the help that God gives us, which doesn't imply that same hierarchy, pretty, pretty, please, right? And that division and that idea of help as that which otherwise is coming from God. All of that suggests that despite all of our now millennia of thinking of this as a hierarchical tradition, it suggests that what God intended in those first moments was for the relationship between humans to reflect the love and the grace and the compassion that marks God's relationship with us. To be able to embody with one another that same divine help, that same divine love. The idea being if we could show it to one another, we could experience it from God. The relationship between Adam and Eve suggests that God intends us to see in each other, at all points in our lives, the face and presence of God. Which was all well and good until they decided to have a snack. 
both of them were together, even though Eve is the only one with speaking role in these particular long scenes. Adam is right beside her, as we know from the fact that the minute she eats, she turns and hands it to him. He's not more than arm's distance away. They aren't even socially distanced, y'all. He's right there. And the first thing that happens is that they saw that they were naked. And they hid themselves behind clothing and within the greenery of the Garden of Eden. Faced with the knowledge of good and of evil, the big takeaway that Adam and Eve had was that they were vulnerable and that that was a bad thing. The history of our Bible and of the cultures that have formed our traditional understandings, most of which have been informed by said Bible, have a very particular view of strength and of weakness. Strength in our cultural definition for hundreds if not thousands of years now means to have power over the other, even to have the power to define who is other. Strength is the ability to fight and win in the face of adversity, whether it is against external enemies or our own vulnerability. Strength is not crying when you are sad or grieving. Strength is beating someone up. Strength flows from the barrel of a gun. None of this should be surprising in the cultural imagery that has surrounded us for far longer than any of us have walked this earth. When we consider strength, it is with images of Superman, his muscles bulging, or soldiers who are fully armed, or those who stand in the face of grief impassive and invulnerable. It is of castles surrounded by high walls and military bases or prisons surrounded by barbed wire. For strength is in the ability to have and to maintain control over ourselves and others for the sake of our own comfort and self-interest. Which might be, in fact, why those who long for America's greatness hearken back to a time of maximum interference in foreign affairs and American empire building, and why they want to bring back maximum domestic control in the form of white male supremacy enforced through the violence of the powerful. That is, after all, how we have long defined strength. And it's funny. It's not funny, but, you know, it's funny how those who long for that very power now like to see themselves as a white Jesus with a flag and a gun when stories like this one, given to us in the third chapter of Mark's Gospel, clearly paint all of those who seek after their own power as those who would, in fact, be the ones trying to detain or confine Jesus, and who would dismiss his ministry as insanity or as evil. Begs the question, doesn't it? What What is this evil he's doing? How is it that he is aligned with Beelzebub, the very devil? I mean, surely he has harmed people in this process, right? Isn't that what the devil does? He's curing people's illnesses. Oh, what a horrible thing to do. He's casting out demons. He is gathering quite a following to hear these authoritative teachings that still don't sound like anything they've ever heard before. 
Still not sure that qualifies as evil. But what do I know? Because most likely the action that inspired this particular scene, the one thing that Jesus did that really had them out there, trying to shut it all down, and made his family want to shut him away and the authorities want to detain him, probably the action that most inspired this particular moment given to us in Mark's gospel was that he had started arguing with the people who had power. Because his willingness to shift the paradigm was a direct threat to their sense of control over the lives of the people. And Jesus' family, which Mark presents quite differently than the other Gospels do, did you notice that? This is not the Mary who's like, go turn water into wine because I know you can do it. She's not even named here. Jesus' family, in this one instance, props up the systems of power props up the religious authorities, props up the status quo, goes along with it and tries to make him do the same, probably out of fears for Jesus' safety and their own. As the powerful themselves, the religious authorities come down from on high. Did you notice that in the text? They come down from Jerusalem, which is granted on a hill, but still, it implies a hierarchy. They come down from on high with the violence of dismissiveness and condemnation. The first century equivalent of, he should have just done what he was told, or what was she wearing at that point anyway, or even as we have discovered with our Canadian neighbors and ought really to be thinking about for ourselves, we need to kill the Indian to save the child. The words that confirm they're powerful in their view of reality and that turn the sympathies of the people away from anyone who would question that view. The authorities come with the rhetoric of violence in full assurance of their strength and their ability to control the situation either by their institutional might or, if that doesn't work, in collaboration with the spears and swords of the occupying army. Whatever works. But when your argument is based on strength and the proper order of things then it helps to be sure that yours is, in fact, the only possible definition, even if it's the only one you've ever known. David Jacobson, professor at the Boston University School of Theology, reflected on this passage and noted this. Now, since Jesus' teaching is apocalyptic, revelatory, by the way, not end times, apocalyptic, we should beware. His discussion about Satan is in parables, verse 23. So Jesus is not speaking in plain speech, but in the language of mystery. Jesus begins by summing up the scribe's argument about Beelzebul with his own question, how can Satan cast out Satan? Having thus reduced the scribe's argument about Beelzebul to an absurdity, Jesus draws on the commonplace statements, Divided houses and divided kingdoms are not long for this world, and the same goes for Satan himself, in verse 26, who will meet his end. But now comes the coup de grace. Jesus' clever statement about the mythological Satan actually reframes the family and the scribes' narrative about Jesus. No one can enter a strong man's house, Jesus says, and plunder his property without first tying up the strong man then indeed the house can be plundered, which is verse 27. 
Comparing Satan to a strong man makes sense, since evil does seem pretty intractable. What is more, with Satan all tied up, it might be possible for somebody to plunder Satan's house and shake things up. But, Jesus' statement begs a question. Just who is stronger than Satan? And here's the good news. Mark has been anticipating precisely this question for three chapters. One is stronger or more powerful, as we learned from John the Baptist back in chapter 1. Satan is strong, but Jesus is the stronger one yet to come. End quote. By the logic of the religious authorities, or his own family, or even most of our own standard definitions of strength, Jesus is not, in fact, the strongest person in that particular moment. He is unarmed, not a particularly imposing guy in stature that we know of. I think they would have mentioned it if he was. He's just a carpenter's son from a backwater village who has the chutzpah to be talking back to his superiors. And still, Jesus claims in this moment his strength, his overwhelming, unimaginable strength that can bind even the embodiment of evil, that force that had been in the world since the snake first whispered to Eve. Jesus stands in the face of his own family and in the face of those who have demonstrable power over his life and claims that he is stronger than them all. For while they put faith in the power that they can have over those around them, the ways in which they can exert control over their surroundings, and the ways that they can make themselves invulnerable, Jesus puts his faith in a power that embodies God's hope for humanity from the very beginning. Tradition holds that it was in the moment of tasting the fruit that Adam and Eve fell from grace. Though it is worth noting that the Bible itself does not talk about a fall, and indeed that what came next was more in the line of consequence rather than punishment for their actions. But still, I wonder when exactly it was that those two first humans actually sealed their fate. Was it when they tasted the fruit for the first time? Or was it in the moment that they decided vulnerability was bad. That they were willing to hide themselves away rather than be who God had created them to be. Or was it, perhaps, in the moment that followed, when they decided that it was more important to save their own skins behind their newly sewn fig leaves, Was it in the moment that they decided that they were willing to break the bonds between them in a desperate attempt to avoid consequence and pain? Was it in the unwillingness to be vulnerable that extended beyond their bodies to the point of being willing to cast blame? For suddenly that which had been partner is the other. In this grand quest for power. But that which began in Eden, that desire for invulnerability, for a strength that relies on domination, it all comes crashing down in the peregrinations of one particular Galilean who seems like a nobody from nowhere, but whose power cannot be dominated, 
cannot be controlled because it is not the power that comes from self-interest, but from a firm belief in the reality of paradise sitting right before us. That which binds up the strong man and unites us into an indivisible house is not the power that serves the individual. It is not the power that says, she made me do it. It is not the power that lifts up at the cost of the other, the scapegoat, the victim. Rather, Jesus' power is in seeing those who suffer as bearing God within themselves and relating to them as he would to the God whose love sent him into the world in the first place. Jesus' strength is in the very thing that Adam and Eve refused. That vulnerability, that recognizing that we are just individually parts of one great whole, soil and breath, flesh and spirit, apart from one another and yet still one. It isn't the power that any of us necessarily want to hear about as we move through this world. It isn't the power that we trust in. It isn't the power that we know. And it never has been. It's not the power that those who had long awaited the Messiah wanted to see before their eyes. It isn't the power that would seem to us to overthrow oppressors or bring down tyrants. It isn't the power that makes the world perfect, that brings us back to Eden without any effort on our part except, you know, a few thoughts and prayers here and there thrown in for good measure. The power of our faith isn't a power that rests in muscular feats of physical prowess, or in the possibility of high-capacity violence, or in the insistence upon one whitewashed version of reality that requires control for the sake of comforting the powerful. The power of our faith turns everything we have long believed on its head. It puts us in the position of creating new communities, sometimes even new families. When the ones we had choose the systems of power over grace and compassion or mercy or justice. And the power of our faith will be frightening to those who put stock in Superman and soldiers and individualism, in the systems that thrive on breaking the bonds between us and in turning us into adversaries and threats and competitors. But the choice of unnecessary vulnerability the choice to see every interaction with those around us, especially with those whom we might be tempted to discard or dismiss or throw under the bus to save our own skins. The choice to see those relationships as the manifestation of our relationship with our God. That is what it will heal the fractures that have long exiled us from the world and the creation that God desires for us still. Because the world that God created, the paradise that we know as Eden, but is simply the balanced creation that was before we broke it. That is the world that God still dreams for us. That is the world for which we are in covenant with our God. That is the world that shows forth the generosity of our creator, 
world of abundance for all that breathes God's spirit, which, spoiler alert, is everything. It is the world that we call the kingdom, but it is not some far-off dream that we will achieve after death, but rather that which happens when we are willing to love one another as clearly as God loves us. Instead of investing our time and energy in a world of short-term self-interested vision and the seeking of power for its own sake. And it is all of it. A world that can yet exist. A world that occasionally does exist in small doses around us. And the way ahead into that world, it seems impossible. Probably most of the time, quite frankly. The ways of lifting up those who've been damaged by our culture. The ways of amplifying the voices who are often silenced. The ways of ensuring justice even when it means rethinking the status quo that has long been so comfortable for so many of us. The ways of seeking peace in a world that has enough for everyone if only it weren't hoarded away into the power coffers of those who would tell us that we are crazy or evil or dangerous for believing that the world could be otherwise. And that seems a long slog up a very steep hill a lot of the time, doesn't it? But that is the world that God holds on to. And that is the world that we are in covenant to create. And that is the world that remains a possibility, even when all around us seems hard and heavy. Because by faith we proclaim that in a world that loves crucifixion, we believe in the resurrection. By faith we proclaim that in a world that loves domination, we believe in relationship. Because by faith we proclaim that in a world that elevates humanity, we sit humbly with our God in human flesh, in the midst of this holy and blessed creation, which can yet be healed. Thanks be to God. Alleluia. Amen.